This is Holes to Heavens, a space where I attempt to capture all the sound and language and stories as they pertain to what I find most interesting, which is cosmos, mythos, and to psyche. And I'm your host, Adam Summer. And welcome to another podcast. I'm recording on July 25 of 22, and you're about to hear a discussion that I had with the legendary Anne Baring about hope, the goddess, big ages, chunks of time, and a bit of her biography as well, which is really inspiring. Ever since I first visited the UK and learned about Anne, I've wanted to have her on, and it finally happened under the Capricorn full moon that happened recently. And so I'm still here in Chamonix. It's hot like it is in most of Europe. In fact, every night, and it's strange how it happens at night, I suppose, you can hear the glaciers falling apart. It sounds like fireworks. It makes sense that the original settlers here felt that there was dragons up in those mountains because it is. It's loud. It's ominous. It makes me very happy that I'm not camping up there near them. And yeah, it's a beautiful thing though, in a dark sense, that you can just see these glaciers right out the window I'm talking. I'm staring at them. And then slowly, over time, we have our proof of some change, some sort of a warming. It's hilarious. There's even arguments about it. But uh, here for another month and definitely loving it. It's been nice to have a summer in the mountains and yeah, to have conversations like this at the same time. So I'm into it. If you're not familiar with Anne, I was I was so pleased to hear her mention Richard Tarnas when we got to talking about hope. In fact, on her website, there's a little snippet that Rick wrote for her. And he says about Anne that she has devoted her life to humanity's recovery of the anima mundi. That is the soul of the world and indeed its own soul. And so they obviously have a background and adore each other. And any friend of Richard's is a friend of the show, in my opinion. And so, yeah, if you resonate with Anne, make sure to get some of her books. The Dream of the Cosmos is the one I have. I also actually have a digital copy of The Myth of the Goddess that she wrote with Jules, which you'll hear about. But you can go to annebearing.com and peruse. She has a lot of YouTube videos as well that you can watch. And yeah, I hope that you enjoy this conversation real quick. A couple bits of news. If at any point during this show, you find a piece of the puzzle, something that you've been thinking about for so many years and like that piece just shows up. The best and the freest way of supporting the podcast is just by leaving some stars or even a review on your little app there and it really does help the podcast and in fact if you leave a review take a screenshot of that review and send it to me i'll link you to any class of your choosing free free 
free. So thank you ahead of time. Another way of supporting, but also continuing your journey with astrology and finding community all around the world is by going to patreon.com slash Adam Summer. Last night, we did the Consulating Psyche Leo class, which was loads of fun. This upcoming Sunday, we have our Working with Charts class. And this is always new installments and I think just connections being made on the old patreon so visit there to support the podcast but also become you know part of the community and continue your learning over there and this podcast is also brought to you by solar fire make sure to use soma as the promo code and you'll get 15 percent off of the program also one last thing if you haven't listened to the podcast on fountain yet it's a good option uh, outside of the podcast app on your phone or some of the others and what's so amazing about fountain and it was it was founded by the guy who we consider the pod father adam curry and so what you can do another way of supporting podcasters that you like is you can send them satoshis just as you listen you're like "Ooh, i like this podcast here's 1500 satoshis that kind of a thing hopefully that's the future we're moving into it's at least the one that has my vote and yeah you can you can check it over there and you can also do the same micro payments or tips on twitter if you find me on twitter so with all that said here then is the conversation with ann and i and i'll speak with you a little bit on the other side as well Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Yeah, it's great to finally meet you. I've heard so much about you from Jane and Tansy, and I also have one of your books that uh, Jane gave me. So I haven't read it yet, but I'm eager to. It's the big one. (laughs) It's the encyclopedia. (laughs) Yeah, it's a big one. Take it slowly. Yes. Not all at once. Yeah. Yes. So I'm excited to talk to you on this full moon here in, in July of 2022. And there's, there's so much I'd love to pick your brain about, but maybe as a starter, a uh, bit of a background of, of who you are since you've never been on the show before and what you've been up to throughout your career. Okay. Yeah. Where do you want me to start? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Where to begin? Well, you're a Jungian analyst for one. There's a lot of talk on this podcast about Carl Jung. Uh, you can talk about that. You can talk about what sparked the interest in, in all of the subjects that you've explored throughout your career. You can begin wherever, and then I'll take questions with my curiosity as we go, I suppose. Okay. Well, I think I'll begin when I was 25 and had a wonderful opportunity of going to the Far East. Hmm. I, was in, I was in Rome, and one of my boyfriends introduced me to the head of an encyclopedia there, an Italian encyclopedia, and he said, I will give you the job of going to all the museums in Asia and collecting photographs for our encyclopedia, and you can take your time, and we will pay you on your return for what your expenses were. And... Um, We would be very grateful if you would do this because we can't do it ourselves. So I set off from Rome to go to Delhi 
And then um, I had a very nice Indian friend called Madanjit Singh, who unfortunately has passed now. But he gave me introductions in Delhi to the museums, which helped me get my first photographs. And then from there, I went to all the different countries in um, what was then called Asia, with the exception of China. I went to um, Thailand, Cambodia, Indonesia, Japan, Taiwan. And as I say, nowhere, I didn't go to China. It was out of bounds at the time. And I got my photographs from each of those places with tremendous help and general generosity, really. They, they were very interested in what I was doing. They didn't take it against me that I was a woman, except in Japan, where they were insulted that a woman had been sent to get these photographs from the museum there. So I had some difficulty there, but I got them in the end. And I sent them back um, country by country to Rome. And that took about a year. And that really opened my eyes to Hinduism and Buddhism, and above all, to the art of those great civilizations, because I was very attracted in any case to um, the art of these countries. I learned a great deal about them. I was very appreciative of it and of the depth of feeling that went into the creation of this, mainly the sculptors, uh, the wonderful sculptors of, of the Buddha, marvelous Hindu sculptures. So I learned a great deal. And then traveling further to the east in Indonesia, I met a whole other kind of art there, which was wonderful. And Burma, I went to a place called Pagan up in the north and saw a great series of temples there that had been left in ruins. So it was a real deep exploration into the civilizations of the past of that whole area. And that gave me the foundation for my interest in religions. And when I came back, I wrote a book called The One Work, which was comparing Hinduism and Buddhism to Christianity and showing how they were all essentially connected with each other with the same message of how the human being can become what essentially he or she is. That is to say, he, can, he or she can live their divine nature. Like the, the Buddha said, you have a Buddha nature. And the Hindu tradition says you have an Atman, what they call Atman within you, which is part of Brahman. And um, so they gave me a deep insight, all these things. I read the Upanishads, which I absolutely love still. And I read um, the, um, I didn't read the Buddhist text, but I great, read a great deal about Buddhism because there were already then beginning to be writers from the West writing about the East. And there were beginning to be Eastern teachers coming to the West, like uh, Parahamsa, I can really pronounce his name. Parahamsa Yogananda, yeah. Yogananda, absolutely extraordinary teacher. I have his book by my desk all the time. So I knew about those teachers, and I wasn't in search of a guru at that time. I was busy doing the work that I'd been commissioned to do. So um, that was a most marvelous opening um, really a calling which came to me in the course of that journey. As I was very young, 25 is very young really to absorb all that. But anyway, I came home, wrote my book, and then didn't know what to do because <laughs> having mm. had an experience that took you right out of the culture and then coming back into a rather dead culture and very boring culture with nothing great particularly going on, I didn't know what sort of a job to take. And um, 
I can't remember what I did. Well, I got married. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That that was the thing that was normal then to, in my late 20s, it was quite late to get married. And I married an artist, which was a wonderful uh, choice on both our parts. It's been a very happy marriage, Hmm. 62 62 years and going strong. Um, So it gave me the foundation to actually develop my creative gifts because there was no opposition. And also there was, because he was an artist, I didn't have to perform as a wife, say of a diplomat or a politician or a businessman. I was completely free to do my own thing and support him. So it led eventually, I, I had a dress shop then because I had all this love of materials that coming back from India, had a passionate love of the beautiful materials. And I opened a tiny shop in a very fashionable place in London. And I began to do very well financially. And that grew and grew and grew over 12 years until I had a very big business and using the most beautiful materials to make evening dresses, because at that time people wore evening dresses. And then suddenly there was the oil crisis in the 1970s. And I had to close down, I think it was in 69, something like that, or 70. Everything rocketed, everything doubled overnight. And it was time to close the business. And meanwhile, I had always suffered from depression from the age of about 13 or 14. And so I went into, on the advice of a friend, I went on to um, a Jungian analysis with a very wise and supportive man. And that lasted 11 years with him. And then I, he suggested I should apply to train as an analyst. So I applied to Dr. Gerhard Adler, who was one of the co-authors um, of the Jungian uh, books, the series on Jung's creative work. And he said, well, I think you could do with a little more analysis, perhaps with my wife. So I embarked on another analysis with um, his wife, Hella Adler, And that lasted another 11 years. And during that time, um, I began to become a a writer. And I had an extraordinary dream, which was um, the the great dream of my whole life and which changed the course of my life or gave me the orientation for my life. And that was a dream of a cosmic woman who, when you read my book, you'll read about it, but um, her form stretched from the earth to the sky. I mean, a colossal figure of a woman. She was naked, very beautiful, and not young or old, just eternal, I suppose. And she didn't speak, but she had a huge revolving wheel in her abdomen. And I looked down, I was lying on the ground, caught in a net, which was the net of um, incarnation, if you like, And I was looking up at her, and I saw that I had um, a sort of um, labyrinth in in my abdomen as well. But mine was over on the left. And she didn't speak, but she indicated that I was to move my my wheel or my labyrinth to the center. It was too far to the left. So I got the message. And afterwards, I wondered, who was she? And I thought of all the goddesses I knew, because I'd already written a book with a friend of mine called Jules Cashford called The Myth of the Goddess, which is a huge compilation of 650 pages of making a study of the goddess image from the Paleolithic right up to the Virgin Mary. 
And that took us 10 years while I was training to be an analyst with Hella Adler and Gerhard Adler. So that was an enormous work, but she didn't fit any of the goddess figures that I knew about until I came to Kabbalah. And there I found the image of the Shekinah and the feminine aspect of the Godhead. And I just in a flash knew that that was who she was, that that was who this cosmic woman was. She was the feminine aspect of the divine or of deity, if you like. Um, and it only comes into the um, Kabbalah. That's the only tradition which has the, or in the West anyway, which has the image of the feminine in the Godhead. So this really stimulated me to write my final book or the one, my latest book, which is The Dream of the Cosmos, A Quest for the Soul. And I'd already written two books with Andrew Harvey, um, short books, one on the mystic vision and one on the divine feminine. And also a book for children called The Birds Who Flew Beyond Time, which was really based on the Sufi um, story of the conference of the birds. And it was a story of how the birds go in search of the, um, <clears throat> of, of the Godhead, really, and what they have to encounter on their way. I changed it to fit into the modern sort of time. Anyway, that took me into the dream of the cosmos, and that took me a, a good 20 years to write in all, because it, it was a compendium of talks that I'd given, studies that I'd done, and work that was taking me further into this image of the divine feminine. And that was published in 2013 and republished in 2020 when it was updated. And it's now been translated into French and Italian, as well as English. So that's been my work, really. And it all came out of that dream. And before that, out of my journey to the Far East, when I was really quite young. So one can't know at the age of 25 what you're going to become at the age of 90. You just don't know. So I always say to people, just trust your own life. Trust your unfolding. Don't make yourself do anything. Just do what your heart is desiring or leading you to and um, go on your path. Don't have any preconceptions of what you're going to become because mm. <laughs> you just don't know. And I, astrologically speaking, I'm Sagittarius with Scorpio rising. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and some context for all of us. I was born at six in the morning. And anyway, uh, with the moon opposite the sun in Gemini. <clears throat> You're a full moon. So, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Yes, that What's I hadn't sort of twigged. Thank you for telling me. <laughs> Just like today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very so good. I've given you the sort of general art my, outline of my life. I have a very quiet, contemplative life with my artist husband, not trying to be anything, not seeking any fame on the world stage, not trying to be a celebrity, mm -hmm. um, just getting on with our work, both of us, and bringing up a daughter and a grandchild who's now 26, 27, going to be this month, this week, actually. Gracious, I must remember his birthday. Um, <laughs> So there, there we are. So if you want to ask anything now, I'm very happy to answer things. Sure. No, thank you for that. <clears throat> and yeah, very concise biography, inspiring one as well. And that what brought you to Asia, I would imagine that job doesn't even exist anymore. 
with the internet and all. And no, it no. It, it, <laughs> it really was an adventure. Each country was different. Each country was a fascinating discovery. <clears throat> and um, an adventure, complete adventure. And I learned so much. I mean, just mm. so much is in me. The riches of Asia are in me still and come out in some of my talks when I'm asked to talk about it, particularly the Upanishads, which have such wisdom in them. And um, I don't know, really. I was immensely privileged. And I was also helped because I had an ambassador uncle in Bangkok, and he gave me introductions to all these different countries, to the embassies in those different countries. And so I got help from the embassies getting introductions mm -hmm. to the museums. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't as easy as it may, I make it sound, but it was, I had a lot of help. I was very fortunate in that sense. And yeah, I mean, also in those days, you, you could hop on a plane with no problem at all. You just went to the airport, got on a plane, went to the next country. You didn't need a visa, didn't cost hardly anything. I think my whole trip cost me 200 pounds. Oh my God. It's $200 to even search for a flight online these days. Yeah. It was extraordinary, really. Oh, wow. And so whenever I hear that someone has done a lot of traveling in Asia, I'm always curious about where their favorite spot is. So in all your travels in Asia, would you, would you say you have one? I think two places. One is a place called Arunachala in southern India, so a sacred mountain, holy mountain, hmm. where a great sage called the uh, Mahashi lives, Sri Ramana. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of my favorite places. <clears throat> but then I love the, the Him Himalayas or the Himalayas, I, the, the incredible beauty of northern India, and the, particularly the northern Raj states, Udaipur, Jaipur, I was there just after partition, when people had barely recovered from the terrible massacres that had taken place and were extremely poor and settling into the cities that I went to, like Udaipur and, and uh, Jaipur. So I was very aware of that. But of course, I went also to the Taj Mahal, which was a miraculous experience, absolutely marvelous. Uh, just the vision that you see it as you approach, approach it through a portal this white, gleaming, incredible, beautiful temple or tomb, as it is. Mm. Those are memories that I, I have. But I also loved um, Borobudur in Java. There was a temple there, which was fascinating. I also loved the temples in Japan and a place called Horuji. Um, I didn't go to China. I got a visa to China. And it landed on my uncle's desk in Bangkok. And he held it up to me and he said, what is this? You can't possibly go to China. You'll cause a diplomatic incident. <laughs> I forbid you to go there. So I had to obey him being who he was and I couldn't go. But I deeply regretted because part of my attraction was to go to China and to visit the temple sites there. But it wasn't the time. I couldn't have gone at that time. It was in the middle of the Cultural Revolution, and it would have been a nightmare. And I certainly would have caused a diplomatic incident, so it wouldn't have been good. But I think those are the favorite places that I had. There was beauty everywhere, because the beauty of Asia is just incredible. Beauty of India, beauty of um, Japan, beauty of um, Java. 
Mm-hmm. And Bali, I went to Bali, which was absolutely wonderful experience. That was very beautiful and also very um, moving because it took me back into what a culture must have been a thousand years ago in that area and how they'd kept it alive and been true to their traditions and hadn't really lost anything of their connection with nature and their connection with spirit, both those aspects. And that's something that India has too. That was the great lesson of India, was the closeness to nature that people mm-hmm. lived, as well as the closeness to, to spirit. They were intertwined. You couldn't separate them. And that is t- completely lacking in the West. And that's why we've come into the place that we are now and the huge catastrophe, really, of what we've been living unconsciously for many, many decades or centuries, really. But it was all coming from the split between spirit and nature in Christianity, which influenced all the cultures which developed in in Europe. And really, it's only in the great poets of the 18th century that you recover that sense of connection to nature. And, of course, the mystics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All all through you had the mystics, like Hildegard of Bingen, and also Dante, and the great writers of the Renaissance. And the Renaissance itself, I'm just wandering along now, I hope that's okay. (laughs) No, I like it. The Renaissance itself. Having tea with Anne and allowing all the wisdom (laughs) to come in the stories. I'm I'm a receptacle. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Renaissance was an extraordinary time for me because of the beauty, our beauty of the art. My daughter, my mother took me there when I was 15, first of all, and again when I was 16, and introduced me to the fantastic painting of that era, the 15th, 16th century, 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries. And I just absorbed it like a sponge. So that was the first revelation. The second was the journey to the East, but the first one was uh, Renaissance Europe and particularly Mm -hmm. Italy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was blessed, as I say, to have this wonderful mother who was both a poet and an artist and who knew where to take me to these places in Italy and who was a wonderful guide. So I was blessed in in that sense, very much so. She was a poet as well as an artist herself. So I want to double-click on a theme, though, and just all of your travels, and I know what so much of your work has focused on and it's trying to kind of crack the, the quandary, I suppose, the code of, of, of where we are now, but also the great mystery of where we've been. And so you mentioned your love for India. I personally have never been to India, but I'm really familiar with a lot of things Vedic. I've studied Vedic astrology. I've read the Upanishads and, you know, I'm I'm familiar enough more than most will say. And I have this creeping suspicion and it's, it's very much countered say by a lot of people in the astrological field, but I have this creeping suspicion that there was say before the younger Dryas, or we'll just say roughly 12,000 years ago, that there was somewhat of this high civilization that included India, but a lot of the Middle East. And because of some sort of a cataclysm that may have occurred, there's a lot of evidence for this at the moment, but around, you know, 11, 12,000 years ago, 
a lot of the glaciers melted, a lot of the oceans rose tremendously, and then you have these flood myths and then the Sumerians coming to Ur, and that kind of reboots civilization. Now, my creeping suspicion is that so much of this, the mysteries of these temples, the mysteries of things like astrology and yoga and and just these stories that we discover as well in the Upanishads and many other texts, come from... a like another age, right? That we perhaps are amnesiacs to because of some sort of a cataclysm that happened. I would agree with that because I've studied that and I know that cataclysm was in fact, we think, according to Graham Hancock, was caused by the fragments of a comet hitting Mm. the earth in different places, enormous fragments of a mile wide. And that caused immediately the melting of the glaciers overnight, particularly right. the great um, glacier field in Canada and North America. That's right. And that wiped, yeah. that wiped out that whole culture. I can't remember what it was called. but Clovis. Was, Clovis, that's right. It wiped out the animals, but also the people. Mm. There were many people living there. So they were totally wiped out. And then, of course, um, you had the younger Dryas for a thousand years, which was a freezing cold period in which people had to really go underground in order to survive. You hear about it in the Dordogne area when it, you can see that the tools change or there's something changes. It's called the Solutrean period there. And then you had another cataclysm, which is the one Plato refers to, which was the Atlantean cataclysm, mm-hmm. another flood. Um, or another rather submersions of a huge area of land. But before that, you had, as I what you've just said, really, you had people traveling from Atlantis and probably from the earlier Lemurian civilization in the Far East. You had them traveling to different places so that something would be left, like Gobekli Tepe, Tepe, Gobekli Tepe, pronounce it. But that, that was a survival um, imprint, if you like. I mean, what they built there, which they haven't excavated yet. I think there are nine other sites there that haven't been excavated. But you had there certainly people who knew astrology and certainly who knew how to survive and who built these extraordinary kind of temple. I don't know what they were, really, but they must have been a kind of temple and left a record for us to discover. And as you say, we've had amnesia. We no kind of academic would recognize what we're talking about until very recently, even if then, I'm not sure they do now. And then Egypt goes back definitely to 10,000 BC Hmm. um, and had an extraordinary civilization of which we have the remnants only. So we're left with the remnants. And it's tragic really that um, we've kind of lost our way having really inherited so much, as you say, in the Vedic tradition and also in Egypt and possibly China as well. And Indonesia was a much, I mean, there's a temple in um, Java that's supposed to be over 20,000 years old. Wow. I can't remember what it's called. Can you remember the name of it? The one in Java? No, I'm not, I've never been, I know Angkor Wat. (laughs) <laughs> that's in Cambodia. Yeah, well, that's that's something too. That's that's almost like a memory, Angkor Wat. I, you know, that's the most amazing place. But Graham Hancock has explored all these places, and mm-hmm. I think his books are absolutely fascinating. And I devour every one that comes out. But um, 
there is so much richness that nobody's taught in schools now. Nobody learns that there are these ancient civilizations. Nobody looks at the great works of art, whether they're in South America or, or in Asia or in India. And certainly the Vedic teaching is still alive. I mean, it's an extraordinary teaching if we could just take it on board, <laughs> which is that everything is spirit. Everything yeah. is divine. Everything is sacred. And this is what I'm trying to get across in my work, that, that um, as William Blake said, everything is holy. And we, we just have no idea what we're living in and how sacred all of the surroundings are. And the great mountain where you are, that must have been sacred for thousands of years. Oh, you would imagine, right? I mean, what I've, I've tried to learn and find some stuff, and since I've been here, and, and, and the most imaginary or mythic piece I've found is that the early settlers here, and it wasn't too, too long ago, as far as we know, related to the glaciers as dragons. And they saw oh, really? them as dragons that lived up in the mountain. And yeah, because uh, yeah, they do. Like I had just mentioned to you backstage before we recorded, like a couple nights ago, one of them broke off and it sounded like fireworks. And I would imagine there was yeah, some the, of that. Dragon is breathing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, especially if it was just you in the valley with a little settlement or something like this, and you hear it rumbling in the mountain. Yeah, I, I can imagine where that takes you. But, uh, on this subject, though, okay, so you, you're totally with me. You know more than I could even imagine about this. And I want to bring it to the present in the sense that we do. We have all these ancient traces of an ancient civilization, yet current academics, and even I would say most people, just look at all of it and like, well, that's interesting. But they don't put much thought into it. Right. And it, when, it, when it comes into, say, preservation of these cultures, like it, it has always been interesting to me. We'll just focus on, on, on Vedic culture versus the West is they've preserved that in a pretty solid way, especially their astrology. It's kind of unbroken for thousands of years, whereas Western mm -hmm. astrology, the whole tradition has been battered and buried and, 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 and scarred in so many ways that yeah. it's a miracle that it even exists the way it does to this day. Mm -hmm. um, and so in thinking of it in say the context of the procession or the great year as Plato called it, this time that we're pointing to that was before the younger dryas was the last golden age, you know, age of no. Leo. Yes. Right. Yes. Like, no. And, and so we then come to the present and we're moving into the age of Aquarius and Aquarius. Yes. Yep. Which is the exact opposite. Yes. The exact opposite. And then in the yugas, we hear of Kali Yuga, which is the shortest of all of the yugas, a different way of dividing up the procession. And so I listened to your lecture earlier where you were talking about the birthing of a new world in this context, the, the way that you were talking about it is from a lunar and a solar sense or like a matriarchal and a patriarchal context of just the last 10,000 years of history. My big question is, is do you think of time in our collective evolution in this processional way or what kind of model do you use when trying to understand, are we ascending back into something golden, something more 
harmonious? I think we are ascending. I think that if we get our wits together (laughs) and if we can get rid of these politicians who fight with each other, I mean, who are competing with each other all the time, instead of acting together to to help the earth and to, to help the people of the earth, then I think there is a chance that we're supposed, I mean, this is what the predictions and the prophecies say, that we're supposed to move into a golden age um, again. But we're not going to do it without a lot having to go, as it were, a lot having to be discarded, possibly a great deal of um, catastrophes, some kind of catastrophes on the way, like previously. I just don't know, but I know it's going to be a very difficult passage and we're just at the beginning of it. And whether we have the intelligence as a species to see what's happening and to cooperate with it rather than just going on blindly, I don't know yet. I can't tell. Mm -hmm. I can see huge changes in my lifetime. I mean, I can see how many people have woken up over, say, the last 60 years, 50, 60 years, mainly through the influence of outstanding people like, say, Deepak Chopra or Alan Watts or mm-hmm. the Buddhist, Buddhist teachers who come to the West or the Hindu teachers who come to the West, um, like um, Yogananda. Even so, that the great mass of humanity is just lost in survival still, survival instincts which direct most of the actions of the um, governments of the world still, they they haven't got the higher insight and the higher perspective that we're talking about that we really need. (coughs) They know nothing about astrology and the procession of the the equinoxes. So that can't be expected. There's no reason why they should. But even so, they must see that something's got to change and that, that they can't go on as they have in the past just fighting with each other for power. That age is over, and the sooner they realize it, the better. But how one gets it to them, I don't know. It may come just through catastrophe itself, waking them up, or it may come through personal experience, revelation, sudden insights, um, a near-death experience. One just doesn't know. Mm-mm. There's, there's been so much that has been working to open people's consciousness in the last 20, 30 years, really since the, the 60s of the last century. And there's been also the, the UFO phenomenon, which has got quite a lot of traction. And uh, different things like that are coming in from the sidelines to um, indicate that there are other things and there may be other people in the universe watching us. I think one of the biggest problems has been the philosophy of or the ideology of scientific materialism, which has said that there's no, we live in a dead universe and that we're the only conscious people in the universe, which is such a ridiculous proposition that it's just ludicrous, but they believe it. And this has set the scene for a very secular society which has no belief in anything beyond the material present. And this is a big problem, how to help people to understand that there's more to life than material things. Um, I've been very lucky in my life in the sense of the material things that I've had. I've been very blessed 
And I can see how other people see life in terms of survival and how having money seems to be the answer to the problem of survival. I can see where the whole emphasis on power comes from, but that is all ego-driven. It's not driven by the soul, and it's not driven by the insight that we need, which we have within us. We have that divinity within us, that Atman, that Buddha nature, but um, people haven't taught us how to connect with it in sufficient quantity of people to really make a difference yet. What do you think? Mm. Well, I want to double click on the UFO phenomena, actually, and, and comment on, that's what I think with, in context with these ages, right? Cause I'm with you that like, there is this great forgetting that there is too much emphasis on scientific rationalism that like, if you can't, measure it it's not real uh just it's 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 a strange moment that we're in and one of the things that fascinates me about kind of this bigger way of trying to understand time and where we're at because i'm also not naive or i, I mean, yeah i'm not naive to the fact that every generation seems to have its armageddon or, or something that's looming it's almost like it's an archetype to some extent, like it's just in there, but, and, and also trying to avoid saying like, this time is different. It does feel that this time is different. <laughs> There's a lot of converging of cycles in this decade. It does feel like this time is different, but from what? And so the reason why I want to double click on the UFO phenomena is because it's part of what I feel is, is, maybe belonging to like the theme and or avatar that exists within every age. For example, we're leaving the age of Pisces. We have the fishes, we have Christ, the fisher of men, the age of Aries, the Ram age of Taurus was the worship of the bull and the goddess. And then, you know, so on, you know, you just keep going back like this and you can start to see there's a theme that is noticeable. Like even you mentioned Graham's work, like him and, what's his name, Robert Schock and the Sphinx and being able to yeah. date it to a very, you know, 10, ancient time because yeah. of the age of Leo, right? Yeah. Like 10,000 yeah. BC is 12,000 years ago. And that's what we were saying earlier. Um, so astroarchaeology is kind of what we're up to here. And so my question to you then is what might be the theme avatar slash avatar of the age of Aquarius? There is an interesting interest in UFOs or you, what are they calling them now? UAEs? Is that the new term? Why, why they have to go and change the name? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. Um, but, but there's that. And, and it seems to be a very clear split as well within the conversation around aliens at the moment between are they actual physical manifestations of something or is it a psychic phenomena? Is it extra dimensional? I guess there's even the third of like, this is government experimentation, but like, could that be part of the next 2000 years of this Aquarian age? Or is it something that we can't even recognize, for instance, um, of a genderless world of, you know, AI and modified humans and all these technological advances that could also be suspected with an Aquarian age as we ascend slowly towards the next Satya Yuga. What are your thoughts? I think, 
I think to go down the AI path would be absolute catastrophe, catastrophe for humanity. I know there's a strong movement coming from something called the Great Reset and uh, oh, um, yes, that. the World Economic Forum. But I think that is sheer evil, in my view. So I wouldn't go down that path. But it's possible that uh, the people who are visiting us from whatever planetary system are far more advanced. Well, they obviously are far more advanced than we are and may use some kind of advanced technology, um, including AI, but it would be benevolent, I think. I don't think of them as malevolent at all. Mm -hmm. But I, I do That's think good. of the United States' attitude to them as malevolent, taking them to be invading aliens who are going to have to be fought. Immediately, the, the, the reaction is, oh, we've got to have the power to fight them and get rid of them. And, you know. <laughs> That, that sort of thing. That's all the wrong attitude. And we, we should be welcoming them. They might give us some hints on how to behave. <laughs> um, but I, I do believe in, in higher beings because my mother had an extraordinary experience just during the war when she was in New York, when a higher being entered her sitting room. She was with two other women. I've described it in my original website. It's under channeled messages. But... Um, this being, they said, what should we do? And the being said, follow your heart. And they said, should we worship in church? And they, the being said, your church is your immortal soul. Mm. Now, those words just send shivers. They, they don't come from a human mind, that. They come from an uh, angelic mind, if you like, or an extraterrestrial mind. So I've always trusted that there are these other beings in existence, whether you call them angelic beings or UFOs or whatever. They've always been known about. They're known about in the Bible. Um, Ezekiel's vision of the chariot. You don't have to go very far to, to find these visionary experiences, which have been completely shut down in our culture because they don't, aren't believed to exist. So they have to come in by the back door, by the UFOs possibly, rather than um, by people having experiences in which they see these visions, like I did of the cosmic woman. I mean, that was a visionary experience if there was one. What's her name again, by the way? I'm sure some people are going to want to look that goddess up. You said Sh Shinnik? Shakina, the Shakina of Kabbalah. Okay. And how do you that's spell That's how I pronounce it. How do I spell it? Yeah. S-H-E-K-I-N-A-H. -S Got it. Shekina. I know some people are trying to Google it right now, and I just want to do that for them. But yeah, continue. Yeah. And not all people will agree with me, but my, from my study of, of a great man called Gershom Sholem, who was the great authority on Kabbalah 30 or 40 years ago, I really took my chapter three of my Dream of the Cosmos from his knowledge and that's why I call her the Shekinah, or the Shekinah. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. But I was just sure that that clicked with my visionary dream. And she is the feminine aspect of the divine. I mean, this is enough to make you go down on your knees when you think about it. It's not something you take lightly. But she gradually led me to the understanding that everything is divinity and we are part of this divinity that we don't even recognize as being that we are in it. In the material dimension is like an epiphany or a manifestation of this deep underlying stratum of divinity, um, which we call the ground of being. 
um, or I call the ground of being. So it's not separate from that ground of being. It's a manifestation of it. And the ground of being is present in every aspect of it. Um, this is what I've learned and what she taught me to discover. I mean, I had to work very hard to make the discovery, but I've made it. And I can speak from that certainty now. Um, at the age I am, I can speak with authority about what I know. Indeed, you're allowed to. We're listening. <laughs> and uh, so a final inquiry around it, just this transition of ages and this moment of crisis that the world is in right now. Where do you find hope? Is it in forms of the goddess like this and just kind of resting assured in the immortal nature of your soul that everything is going to be all right? Or do you feel that there's, a, there's another angle of what gives you hope? Um, what gives me hope is the large number of people whom I've come to know in my life and others whom I don't know who are working to bring this new consciousness into being. Mm. People like Deepak Chopra, people like Ervin um, Laszlo, who started a movement called Upshift, people like um, the man who runs the Shift Network, Mm -hmm. He's been working for years to bring people to a wider understanding of different things. Fascinating um, anthology of people that he's offered over the last 20 or 30 years. So it's, it's, it's people like that who give me hope that something is being done underneath the surface of the culture to create this new civilization that we hope will come to being. Um, I know quite a few of them. I mean, people like Richard Tarnas, yes. people like Jean, Jean Houston, people like a, a woman called Annalise Smitsman, who's writing a trilogy of books with Jean Houston at this moment. Two of them have been published. So I would say there's a good hundred people on the planet who have got groups following them and whom, whom they've been teaching over the last 20, 30 years. And... Um, who really could be called wise. They are the, the wise leaders. So that gives me hope. There's also a group in Canada called the Visioneers who are launching an enormous webs website in October this year. They're friends of mine, and they're launching it as a kind of um, great library of Alexandria mm. um, of, of all the people who have contributed to this shift. They, they, they built them into a great, um, as it were, uh, what's the word? Well, a website of initiatives and individuals who are contributing to this new um, age that we would like to bring into being. It's called the visioneers.co.ca. So, I mean, I've, I've been blessed to know these people, and I think we've all been incarnated at this time to do this work. I didn't know this at 20 or even at 50, but I know it now. And I also have something called the Scientific and Medical Network run by a great friend called David Lorimer, who lives in France, and a lovely woman called Veronica Goodchild, who's also there. So they're a group of very good friends that I've built up in my life who are all working on this same trajectory, if you like, of uh, how to create something new out of what we got at the present, out of the old. There's also Peter Kingsley, who mm -hmm. wrote wonderful books. You may know of them. I do. In the, in yeah, he's, he's in the queue. 
to come on the show. I'm trying to get okay. Well, well, he a lot of Michael's he, old friends. That's right. Yes. Well, he's a, a friend of mine, although I don't see much of him or communicate much. But I was responsible for getting that book published. Oh, really? About Parmenides. Parmenides. About Parmenides. And Parmenides has been a kind of guide for me as well through that book, because there was all the wisdom, as Peter mm -hmm. says, that we needed. And we ditched it all because we followed the intellectual path, misinterpreting Plato, really. Misinterpreting what he meant about um, the, the word noose or nous, I don't know how to pronounce it, but mistaking it for the intellect instead of the higher vision. Do you feel Facino mistranslated or was he on to it? I think he was probably on to it. Yeah, Me too. I think so. Yeah, because you couldn't have had that um, incredible civilization in Renaissance Italy without it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I and agree. also it's in all the painting. The divinity is there in all the painting. Yeah, it was there for that beautiful moment in history and then it was gone. It was gone because of the wars and the 30 years war in Germany and Martin Luther with the wrong message again. <laughs> <laughs> and all the tortures that went on in the name of Christ. I mean, it's simply terrible what happened. The mistakes that were made and in the seduction of what Jesus called the master of the world or the ruler of the world, which is the power principle. Mm. And it's so clear from what he says that, uh, that that is what we have to overcome. Yeah, he has to be the most misunderstood man in the last 2,000 years at least. <laughs> Just shaking Absolutely. his head eternally. It's like, I can't believe this is what they thought I said. I can't believe this is what they did with my story. It's so unfortunate. Nevertheless, the, the foundation is there and the mystics understood it right the way through. And it's, it's thanks to the mystics and the artists that we really have any inkling of what he really taught, I think. Yeah. And the fact that we've, these things have come down to us. I, I should mention the Gospel of the Beloved Companion, written by Mary Magdalene, mm -hmm. um, which is the authentic um, record of his mission, because she wrote it down herself as the story unfolded, as she was with him, and she was his wife, and this is what another part of my work is establishing that she was the wife of Jesus and mm -hmm. not just a hanger on following him around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a lot of hope to offer a, a, a listener yeah. to this, that there's all these people. And I know that, you know, I would add to it that certain platforms like podcasts are really interesting in the sense that these conversations can happen be recorded and be put out there for anyone to listen to whenever it's yeah. similar to radio, but there is something actually a little different, you know, that like with radio, sure you, you could do it without bosses or it doesn't have to be on the BBC or something like this for it to happen. But podcasts are really unique that anyone can do it. It's very decentralized yeah. in that way. And there's so many, amazing conversations that are happening in this way, long form. And so I think that's a very much part of it, very much so. And also the fact that we've got this technology just at the moment we need it. I know. When, when we need to, although there's a dark side to it as well, but we need this communication all over the world with different people and to know that we're really of one species and uh, 
feeling the same things and and longing for the same mm-hmm. outcomes, so to speak. So I'm sure there's great hope there. And I do trust this, this evolutionary process. I do trust that it's going to bring us through. Definitely. I do too. There's a deep knowing in that. And I think you could, like, the dedication that you've had to this type of inquiry into just the divine nature of, of, of the human experience and where it's shown up throughout history is, is something But when we go back and when we do our research, we then in, in the present can have greater context for everything that we're experiencing, or even yeah. if not, we're experiencing it yet. The, 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 the feeling that there is something else, everyone's at a different part of their journey, but just to become educated that there's more than one history to the world. Yes, exactly. And there's so much richness. Yes. Yeah. And so much to be discovered still. Well, thank you so much for the work that you've done. I'm really excited to read your book. I don't have it with me. It's a huge one to travel with, and it's in a <laughs> box. <laughs> and I'll get it when I get back to Devon. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, you, you need to read it because it's in itself. It's a it's a transformative experience to read that book, and I, I know that for myself. It was a transformative experience to write it because it transformed me. But the people who read it say they are transformed by it because they understand things in a different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm eager. Tansy and I both have a copy of it as well, so <laughs> she doesn't have an excuse either. <laughs> Did you not come by car? You you came by plane to Shaman. No, no, we you, drove. We drove. You drove. The uh, you there left was the a limit. Behind. <laughs> There was a limit to it. Well, I'm actually trying to write my own while I'm here, so I didn't want to get too distracted with oh, right. You with have to do books. that. That's, that's right. Yeah. Well, good luck with it. Will it be on astrology or what will it be on? It is. Have you seen those wooden books in England that John Martineau creates? Have you seen them? No. No, I haven't. No. They're lovely little things that are on such subjects as like the stone circles or like the alchemist kitchen or sacred geometry. Like they're very small books, but very condensed with information Mm -hmm. and art. So John Martineau created this series and I would imagine there's probably 40 of them and more and more and more are coming along. I am indeed writing the astrology one. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. I'm very happy to meet you. And um, to know that you're with Tansy too, which is lovely. Yeah. yeah. Well, likewise, and hopefully we'll be able to meet in person sometime. I hope so. Yes. Yeah. Before I depart in the next world. <laughs> yeah. No, we'll make it happen. I know that Jane, she says it almost every time I see her. She's like, you need to meet Anne. And I'm like, I know, I know. I would love to. We'll just have to make it happen. Well, when, when the right time comes, I'm sure it will be, it will happen. Yeah. So do you have any events or any other publications coming out that you want to point people to? I'm writing a book on the Holy Spirit, the feminine aspect of the Holy Spirit, having had that vision. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It will start with that vision. And that's pretty well written, and it will be going to the publisher probably in September, so it will come out next year, and it will just be called the Holy Spirit. All right. Well, good luck with that in the in the final throes of editing. Yes, it won't be very big. It'll hopefully sort of not more than 150 pages at the most. 
because I've written my big books now and I must be, get smaller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one big volume is enough. You did well. Yeah, I've done two big volumes. That's enough, yes. Oh, yeah, the one with Jules. That, that's also on my list. I love her book on the moon, the Jules Casper yes, book. Yes, that, that is marvelous. Well, she wrote that afterwards, just like I read, wrote The Dream of the Cosmos after we'd done our work together. We wow, both felt were... that the, the, the myth of the goddess wasn't enough. We both had to take it further. You and took so it did. further. <laughs> you both different... did your tomes afterwards. Yeah, that book That's is incredible. Right. <laughs> it's like the, it's it's the definitive book on the moon. I tell people, like, if you want to know yeah, all it, the it's good a stuff, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book. And she's an astrologer too. I think she. I think she is. Is she? Is she still with yeah. us? By the way. Yes, she's still with us. She's eighty now, and she lives not far from your, from uh, Jane. Um, I need to get Somerset, her on. She then. lives in Somerset. Okay. She lives in, near Il- Ilford. Have you heard of Ilford near Ilminster? Nope, but I know the area somewhat. Anyway, it's not far from where Jane is, and, and she'd love you to visit. Absolutely love it. Okay, mm. I'm going to take a note of that. Yeah. Well, Anne, thank you so much for your time and sharing stories with us. Hopefully it uh, inspired a lot of people that listened to us. Well, it's a great pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. And we'll meet again. Yes, we will. (laughs) Have a beautiful day. Bye. Okay, bye. Well, there you have it. Anne Baring. Nothing quite like talking to a wise old English lady. The only thing that could have made it better was cream tea, as I was listening back. (laughs) In person, cream tea in the garden would have been ideal. But uh, at a distance, for the first round, cannot complain. Again, AaronBaring.com. Swoop up a couple of her books if you're inspired to. They're quite good. And yeah, if you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to remember to leave some stars or a review. Do it on Fountain with some Satoshis, and you'll make me extra happy if you do it that way. And become a patron if you are called to do so and continue your astrological learning journey at Patreon.com slash Adam Summer. And if you want to get solar fire, just remember to use promo code SOMA to do so, and you'll get 15% off of the program. The music that brought us in and out of this here podcast is called Burnt Friedman. And yeah, check out Burnt. Some good tunes, I think. A lot of the tunes I share that are behind our voices, or at least the intro-outro, it's it's the type of music I listen to throughout the day when I'm working and writing and doing what I must do, and no vocals ever. Just really amazing music like Burt Friedman here. And what I'm going to leave you with is not the type of music that I'm usually listening to while I'm writing, <laughs> but perhaps when I'm dancing. I've heard many a times when I'm at rhythm sanctuary or ecstatic dance type scenarios and it's Dea Doya and Mose who is remixing this song called The Valley of the Ancients. It just came out and if you aren't familiar with these artists they might even be traveling to your town at some point. You probably may even know them being that they're in our community and all but uh, I just thought it was an appropriate tune to kind of celebrate the ancestors and to move the body a little bit and yeah to give good gratitude to the divine mother to Anne Baring and of course to you for your attention for making it this far so I hope that you enjoyed the whole show be well be kind 
Evdemonia, and I will speak with you next month with, I believe, Ray Gras, or is it Grasse? I'm going to have to ask him. And until then, ciao.